Hello, and welcome to Christianity and the Classical Tradition, Episode 2 for the Fleming Foundation. We want to give a special thank you to our gold members and above for the website who help bring these podcasts to all of you. My guest, as always, is Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, so glad to have you with us. It's a pleasure to be with you again, Stephen. I was in uh, Romania the last few days, and one of the locals were recounting to me that Hungary was uh, moving some of their refugees out of the country and into Romania, and uh, these refugees were seen crying at the border because, you know, who would want to uh, go to Romania, apparently? But uh, it's not the case elsewhere in Europe where refugees are being uh, brought in with uh, open arms. And of course, as you know from your work throughout the years, immigration has always been a burning issue in the United States. If we're putting this within the context of Christianity and the classical tradition, I suppose we should lead with the Christian notion of being a stranger and being taken in. And I, I suppose in in December and January when we're recording this podcast, it's a particularly poignant thought. It's colder outside in the Northern Hemisphere. We're thinking of the Christmas season and, and that sort of sentiment appeals to, to us. Uh, I was a stranger and you took me in. What's the context for that, Dr. Fleming? Well, the, the Christian tradition has always uh, enjoined personal compassion and personal charity. And this is, this, is, this is part of the Christian ethic. This is not something we want to tamper with or change or abuse. But we do have to understand that uh, statements made by our Lord and his apostles have to be taken in context. They have to be taken also in the context of all the scriptures and of the Christian tradition. Unfortunately, there is a leftist school of Christian thought. It's really inspired by Marx and Engels, not inspired by uh, the scriptures or the Christian tradition, which likes to emphasize uh, not just compassion, but the need for governments and indeed for global government to take over the responsibilities of Christian charity. And in so doing, by the way, they, they deprive us of our, not only the right, but our obligation to be charitable. But second of all, they have stretched this notion of, be, of kindness to strangers to include massive government programs to change the culture and traditions and religion of existing societies. There is absolutely no warrant in this, in either the Old or the New Testament, or in the Christian tradition of, of, any, of any of the major churches. We're not just talking an Orthodox, but if you uh, consider uh, Lutherans, Anglicans, uh, Southern Baptists, uh, Calvinists, this is, this, is, this is an alien 19th century political ideology that has nothing to do with the religion. Now, as a, as a result, though, uh, young, there are young right-wingers, both in Europe and the United States, and some of them not so young, like uh, my friend Alain de Benoit, probably the, the most prominent uh, neo-pagan uh, working today in the world. And they say, look, Christianity is a religion for losers. It's a religion of weakness. Uh, faced with faced with the threat of war or aggression or invasion, uh, Catholic bishops and Protestant cl uh, clergymen say that we have no right 
to defend ourselves. We have no right to defend our property. And, uh, and that this is, uh, this is the essence of Christianity. I heard somebody on National Public Radio the other day, and he, and he was complaining about anyone who uh, used the term war on Christmas. Now, I have a lot of uh, problems with the so-called war on Christmas, which I think is uh, really waged by major retailers more than left-wing people in the media. <laughs> but uh, but he, he then went on to say, what is the essence of the Christmas story but that uh, the landlord uh, generously and openly gave shelter to Mary and Joseph? Well, I wonder what text of the Bible he's reading. There is no landlord in the story. They, they, they were, there was no room at the end, so they went into a stable. We don't know who owned that stable. We don't know how willingly he gave it up. There, there is nothing to the, in the story of the, the birth of Christ. There is nothing in the story to suggest that one has to take in foreign aliens. And when you add to this the fact that Joseph was a Judean Jew going back to be enrolled for the Roman census. Now, I know the Bible says that uh, Caesar Augustus decreed that all the world should be taxed. And the word tax just, but, but in English, had a clear meaning that. It means to be enrolled in the Roman census, which was done every so many years. So there's nothing, it, it, it was like going, it's not like somebody coming from Syria to the United States. It was like somebody going from Wisconsin to Minnesota. There's, there's absolutely no relevance here. Joseph was, in fact, going home. To the, to the land of his ancestors. Galilee was beyond Samaria even. It was considered something of a wilderness. It had only been in, um, in the hands of uh, the, the Jews since the, uh, politically since uh, the late second century, about 105, 106 uh, BC. And so, obviously, a lot of Judean Jews had once it had been added to the uh, kingdom went up there and settled, and Joseph is one of those. So the, the, the relevance of this scriptural passage, or this story, uh, to something like the immigration question is absolutely nil. But the same thing is true of almost all the scriptures these people invoke. They misrepresent them, they rip them out of context, they ignore all of the other passages in, in the Bible, which make it clear that you have a... that. Human communities are natural; that they are formed by by people for their for their own security and their and especially in the case of the Jews, to be able to preserve their religious traditions and hand them down. The same thing is true of Christians. If the Christians had in the uh, in the seventh, uh, eighth, ninth, tenth centuries, when the Islamic world was expanding, oh, they might have just as well thrown down their arms and uh, in France and. Spain and Italy and said, come and take it. It's yours. Have our wives, our children. It's all yours because we don't believe in resisting immigration. I was going to say that sounds rather familiar, but we'll come back to that. Um, when, you, when you're talking about those scriptural verses, can you give us some, some uh, examples of what you're thinking about, Dr. Fleming? Well, for example, one of the, the key stories to understand human nature in the Old Testament. I mean, it's, it's a very beautiful story of men in their arrogance decided that they could rival the, the power of God, and they began to build a tower. Tower at that, this tower, it was felt was an expression 
of their arrogance, the desire to become more than human, the desire to uh, uh, approach divinity. It's very much a repeat, in a, in a political terms, a repeat of the story of uh, Adam and Eve in the garden being, being tempted. Mankind is falling into error by trying to become more than human. And so the fate of this power is that they can't continue building it for the simple reason that they're all speaking different languages. This is a ju- the, 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 among the many things which the Tower of Babel story tells us is that languages, cultures, traditions, ethnic differences, na- nation, national differences, that these are not uh, to be trifled with, and that the, the goal of a global empire, of one human race under a one political United Nations, that this is, this is contrary to the will of the Creator. It's certainly not part of the Christian tradition. So the story of Babel is, a, is always a useful story to, to bring up, to make it clear to people that in calling for a kind of Marxist global state, they are, in fact, are making an anti-Christian argument. This is exactly the argument that Marx and Engels made from the Communist Manifesto on. On a more, uh, on a more uh, particular level, we, we hear people, uh, left, leftist so-called Christians, especially leftist Catholics, they'll quote uh, St. Paul's statement that in baptism there is neither Greek nor Jew. As if Paul's uh, point was to eliminate ethnic and linguistic differences. This is, this is totally irrelevant. Paul was talking about quarrels breaking out, and he does this frequently, talks about this question, quarrels between people of Jewish background, that is Christian, in, in, in Christian communities, Jew, people of Jewish background and people of Greek background. That is often, he doesn't mean literally Greek, but these are people whose cultural tradition is now predominantly uh, Greek in, in the Middle East. And these are distinctions, Paul is saying, that uh, would disappear within Christianity. Because if you go on uh, uh, and read the whole passage, he says, there is neither bond nor free. That is, there's no, there's no such thing as a, a condition of slavery. There is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, we know that Paul instructs slaves to obey their masters, so we know that he is not opposed to, to, to slavery, or being slaves or being masters. But of all the people who would be accused of wanting to eliminate the differences between men and women, I mean, Paul would be the most improbable case. I mean, here's a, he's a man who condemns men who grow their hair long and women who cut their hair and who demands that women be silent in church and have their head covered. Now, if, if there is one Christian writer that is very clear on the importance of the difference between the sexes, it's Paul. So if you look at the whole passage, you realize immediately he's not talking about eliminating national, ethnic, or linguistic differences. Well, obviously, you've given us more uh, Christian context. Uh, what about the classical context? How did the Greeks and the Romans look at this question? Well, here it's, it's, uh, it's crystal. The Greeks, of course, divided the world into a Greek and non-Greek. And they called the non-Greeks barbarians. But even there, uh, the rights in, in, in the classical Greek condition, a, a foreigner, even a Greek foreigner in a Greek city-state, 
had virtually no rights. If he was murdered, even, it was hard to pursue a murder charge against the killer because the alien, unless he had been granted special status within a community, the alien had no legal status. He could not sue in a court of law. The, 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 this, this was so extreme that the Greeks had a workaround, which is that they had a relationship which we now translate as guest friendship, or in the Greek is xenia, which means that uh, you would have a friend in a, in a foreign Greek town. If you were a Spartan, you had friends in Athens and Thebes, and they would host you when you came to town. And if somebody harmed you, they would take your case to court because you had this formal tradition. Now, we're dealing with extremely, uh, extremely particularistic peoples that even within within a Greek region, a Greek community, the even there, these little city states jealously preserved their their national traditions. Now the Romans were uh, were wiser than this. That is, they they formed alliances and leagues of allied states, and starting in their own little territory around Rome, and they gave. They gave partial citizenship uh, privileges and then all citizenship privileges as people were uh, accommodated into the Roman order. They never had any uh, doubt as to making the distinction between the Roman world and the external world. It had, they had to defend the Roman order against Germanic uh, immigrants. The, the so-called barbarian invasions most of what went on, not all, but most of it was an attempt of a peaceful immigration into the Roman world. And of course, the Romans knew this would be disastrous to their own system. So they had to fight to resist first the Gauls coming in, in the, in the Roman Republic, and then these mass migrations of Germans. The fact is that the Roman Empire was eventually overthrown in the West. In, in uh, France and Italy and Switzerland and Austria, it was overthrown by a mass migration of Germanic tribes. So it's a, it's a real, it's a real uh, example of what happens to you if you allow this to happen. The Christians, Western Christians in particular, uh, are extremely indebted in their political thought to, uh, to the Roman order. And as a result, they took very strong views about the, the non-rights of aliens entering into a society. There is no right to immigrate. There may, we may talk about, uh, in, uh, in Christian terms, a right to leave a country, to emigrate. But there is <clears throat> absolutely no positive right under our traditional understanding of Roman law and of natural law. There is no positive right to go to a foreign country where you're, where you're not welcome. Well, that's a that's a thing. Is that that is a what we would say a universal the freedom the freedom of uh, movements of peoples is something that's uh, the hot topic here in Europe and something the the British are trying to renegotiate and it's a, an accepted it's a piece of accepted wisdom in in our day and age. Of course, you have the right to go anywhere you want. What, what's Doctor Fleming talking about? Well, it's it's an invented right that comes largely out of the 18th century Enlightenment, the very period that was in which the intellectuals of Europe were uh, hell-bent on destroying Christianity and making sure that even if people remained Christians, it was strictly a private affair 
It had nothing to do with with how uh, a commonwealth conducted itself. And to do this, they, of course, had to distort all sorts of passages and make up all sorts of lies. One of, one of the lies you get, and you get this from uh, liberal Jews as well as liberal Christians, is that they'll talk about how kind the ancient Jews were to strangers. Well, they were and they weren't. They, uh, in the Old Testament, they make a clear distinction, both in language and in concept, between uh, the stranger who's passing through is, a, is an alien, wants to preserve his alien traditions, these people have no rights whatsoever, and if one of them were to approach the tabernacle or try to take part in a uh, in a Jewish ceremony, they were put to death. There's no there's no equivocation here. On the other hand, there were a group of aliens. We would call them sort of resident aliens. They had uh, signified their desire to become Israelites. They were they're called proselytes in Greek. And that they had uh, decided to study the language of the Jews and to adopt the religion, and they were gradually incorporated into the Jewish Commonwealth. And but within a generation, their origins were usually forgotten because they 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 were assimilated and absorbed and inter- intermarried. All of the passages which talk about the stranger, about how you had to be, you were you remember you were you were strangers in Egypt and and. Uh, and therefore, you should be kind to strangers. Every single one of these just uses very careful language in Hebrew and in the Greek translations and in the Latin translation. It's a very clear distinction. So that the attempt to say that these passages refer to just casual aliens pouring into your country looking for a job, it does not. And any biblical scholar who tries to make this argument is not simply ignorant, but alive. Well, and I remember, Dr. Fleming, a, a conference you were giving in in, uh, in Athens once that you told, you shared with us that uh, in, a, in a collection of, of city-states like Greece, if you were traveling from, from place to place, uh, there was a lot of suspicion around strangers. You know, I think, obviously, in, in the modern world, we, we travel a lot and people are in lots of different places. Back then, the idea that this person who has no sort of letters or or identity that can be vouched for, that this person is a real person of suspicion, and I suppose we're very, very removed from that idea. We are and we aren't. You know, in the heart of every civilized Ivy League educated person, there is still a Paleolithic man uh, inside, and we still have these feelings. I, I, I had a, a, a Marxist friend, Paolo Piccone, who came from the Abruzzo region of Italy, and he said that where he came from, he came from a little, a, a, a small city called Teramo. He said not only if so, a stranger came walking down the street, treated with with great suspicion and even overt hostility, <clears throat> because first of all, you knew if he was an, uh, an Italian or not, if you knew if he was Abruzzese or not, but even more than that. The people in his town all dressed the same way, but on one side of town, they cocked their hat a little different. They tied their bandana a little different. And those differences were enough to make you an object of suspicion. And believe me, you know, there are people who say, oh, well, you know, black people or Mexican people walking down the street are regarded with suspicion if they're in a different neighborhood. Believe me, this, this, this holds true for everybody 
throughout human history at all times, at all places. It's not just race or religion. It can be even people you know belong to your country, but they don't come from around here. You just try with a New York accent to walk into a small village in South Carolina. The people will be friendly to you. But, I mean, they know you're an alien, and they don't know what you're capable of. And this this notion... I was going to say, and sometimes this comes up positively. You're you're referring to Italy, and I'm thinking of the, the of Siena and the Palio, and the idea that you yeah. know these are people who live in the same city, and they're you know they they have differences with each other. Well, my daughter lived in Siena for almost a year, and she lived in a family where you know Siena anciently was divided into neighborhoods called Contrade. And so the Palio delle Contrade is the is the, the horse race, the competition of the neighborhoods. It used to be quite violent, but it is still arouses violent passions. So the people that she was staying with, the husband came from one contrada and the wife came from another. And so at the dinner table, it was all how wonderful their contrada was. And it's a good, we're going to win this year. But when the husband went off to work, the wife would take her aside and say, listen, my contrada is better and they're going to win this year. So even <laughs> marriage does not, uh, does not uh, heal these, uh, these breaches. And this is not something to get angry about. It's not something to condemn. What the Italians like to call campanilismo, that is a positive thing. Campanilismo is the, the, the idea that the people you're you're friends with people who hear the same church bell ringing, you know, and that is you're 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 that locally grounded. It means you have very specific obligations to your neighbors that you don't have to other people. The Christian position was always we have we're not allowed to we're not allowed to violate the rights and property and persons of of strangers, but that doesn't mean that we have to take them into our home. There's a, there's a story, there's a fable that uh, f- feminist researchers have been using. Uh, Carol Gilligan and her students at, at, at Harvard, they go around talking to young women to try to discern their moral attitudes. And one of the stories they tell <clears throat> is the story of the hedgehog and the rabbits. It's a late night, winter night, and there's a knock at the door, and there's a hedgehog, porcupine. And uh, it's sick and cold, so they take him in. And the porcupine is healed, but then he starts moving around, and they're all getting stuck with his quills. And so the father rabbit, the head rabbit, says, uh, it's time for you to go. You know, we can't, we can't live together. Our, our, our folkways are not your folkways. Well, they tell the story, and, and they ask the little girls, what do you think? Now, most American girls are not, are not stupid, and they say, well, it is the rabbit's home. They did this, this, this hedgehog a favor. But now can't he leave? Well, of course, the, 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 the Harvard researchers then, they're supposed to be just gathering data, but they try to reshape the girls' minds. Well, can't they, can't they use alternate days to stay in the house? Maybe they could draw a line down the middle and the rabbits could stay in the corner when the, when the hedgehog is there. The idea that you have no right to your own property. You have no right to your own home. You have no you know, right to your own country. And that is precisely the, uh, the, this globalist, Marxist, universalist attitude, which they then try to foist onto Christianity, where it is totally irrelevant. 
I'm not going to ask you to to reframe all of the arguments that you've set forth, uh, both in Chronicles and in other uh, other books that you've put out in in the past. I suppose what I would ask is, how can we uh, put together the traditions and the arguments of the Greeks, the Romans, the Jews, and and uh, Christianity's posture, and and have it make sense given the current questions, be it in the United States or be it in Europe around immigration, because uh, it seems that every politician in the United States seems to say with the same, I suppose maybe Donald Trump, you can't predict anything the man's going to say, but uh, will say, well, you know, you have a right to have a better future for your family. And then this pretty much justifies anything. Um, how, how can we contextualize all that we've talked about so far against, and that's just one of the arguments that, that you'll hear, but yeah. other arguments that, that we hear in favor of, of this, uh, as you say, neo-enlightenment uh, idea about uh, free movement of peoples and immigration? You know, there, are, um, there are a couple of basic principles which I think we have to keep in mind in, 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 in looking at the world. If we're going to look at the world as, as Christians. The first thing is that um, our Lord told us he had, did not come to overturn the law, but to fulfill it. Now, we have these very clear traditions in the Old Testament which are on how to treat a stranger. On the one hand, there's kindness and compassion for strangers whom we have allowed into our community and have accepted them, and uh, they are adopting our religion and our culture and our language. This does not apply, for example, to Muslims in a Christian country. Muslims enter a Christian country with a very strong mindset. You know, the, the Quran and the other Islamic teachings are very clear. When they get certain percentage of the population of, uh, in the population that's Muslim, they begin to enact Sharia law. They begin to demand that women have their head covered, that alcohol not be consumed in public. And with the higher the percentage, the more the law has to be Islamic. Every society has to decide, is this is something you want? If you want to have an Islamic state that's more like Iran than like uh, the Western world, then that's, that's, what you, that's what you want. That's what the president wants. That's what he should, he should argue for. You cannot be neutral on this subject because the minute there's 25% Muslims in a country, they begin acting as if they can control that country. This is an historical fact and a theological fact. So the, so the first thing to remember is Jesus did not tell us to behave this way. He told us that our customs and traditions, the, the old law of the Jews, but the old laws of Greeks and Romans, they are still in force. They have to be internalized and they have to be, they have to be made spiritual and personal and it can't just be uh, external conformity. But these are not things which the government has a right to do. It's, it's, these are moral things that we have an, have an obligation to do. You, if somebody's starving on your doorstep, you feed it. That doesn't mean you have to send 50% of your income to the United Nations to feed people you've never seen. And when, in fact, most of that money, by the way, as we know, is squandered by greedy bureaucrats at the UN and, at, and, and in national governments, number one. On the, the second point is, again, that... Nations and national communities and local communities uh, all have their own, not just right, but they have an obligation to take care of their own people first. St. Paul says this, St. Augustine says this, St. Thomas Aquinas says this, that the obligations of charity are to those that we are connected with by nature. 
and by then and by, and through God. We are not we are not obliged to be equally charitable to everyone in the world. We're not obliged to give away the things of our children in order to help other children. I mean, in America, we have policies called affirmative action policies, which basically say. I have to privilege other people's children. I have to give them advantages if they have a certain race or religion or ethnicity. I have to deny my children opportunities in life in order to give it to other people's children. This is monstrous. I once wrote this uh, up in a, in a magazine article, and people got mad at me. So I sent a copy to Walter Williams, and everybody knows Walter Williams is a great African-American uh, economist, and I said, is there anything wrong in this argument? He said, absolutely not. Of course there is. We have prior obligations. Now, I brought up the story of the, uh, of the, uh, the hedgehog and the rabbits uh, for several reasons, and one of them is the argument that ap- applied to nation states is the same argument applied to your home. When the Holy Father in Rome told people in, in, uh, across the Europe to Syrian refugees, who after all hate the Christian religion by definition, why doesn't, why doesn't he move a couple into his own papal apartments? I mean, it, it, the, the, if we can take people into our country, then it is the same as if we are moving them into our house. This is, this is not only wildly impractical, it is evil. Because people depend on us. I have four children and several grandchildren. It would be evil for me, on the basis of some political theory from the 18th century, evil for me to sacrifice the interests and security of my children in order to help somebody else fulfill his dream of being a consumerist American. So obviously we need to to keep in mind that we need to work within the customs of the country, as you say, and that we have an obligation to those who are connected to us by nature and by blood. Uh, Barring uh, some sort of miracle in which people, a larger uh, part of the population pays attention to what Dr. Fleming is proposing here. What do you see happening uh, in, 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 I would say in a very short time horizon, in the next two to three years, because I, I don't know, and you know, Dr. Fleming, I haven't been around that long, but in my lifetime, I, I don't know that immigration has ever been more of a hot button issue worldwide uh, than, than it is at this moment. I started uh, thinking and talking and writing about immigration about 35 years ago. And for the first 25 years, it was uh, a voice of one crying in the wilderness. That is, very few people, only racists, wanted to talk to you. And uh, nobody, you know. And, and I, I remember a friend of mine in North Carolina, he was a Senate staffer uh, for Senator uh, East. And he, sa- he told me in 1980, he said, there are, I, I was arguing, look, there are more issues on the table here than immigration. He said, yes, but if we don't stop mass immigration into the United States, there are no other issues. Because there is no, there will be no more United States. There will be no more West. And uh, Jean Raspail, in his great uh, novel *Camp of the Saints*, which uh, I, I knew Raspail uh, for a while, and he he paints a picture of uh, a Europe that's incapable of resisting mass and. Inv- 
invasion, a mass invasion of immigrants, a third world immigrants into France and into the rest of Europe. What I see happening over the past couple of years is a growing alarm among almost all classes of people in Europe and the United States. In France and the Netherlands, for example, it is not just the far right. It's not just Marine Le Pen. It's not just uh, these various right-wing groups. But even left-wing homosexuals are worried. And uh, one of them, of course, was murdered. But they're worried because they know that the toleration which we show toward deviance and eccentricity or just the right to live your own life the way you want to, that this, that this is impossible under an, a society dominated by Muslims. And they, they, know, they know what's coming. There are, there are neighborhoods in, in Paris, there are neighborhoods in London, there are neighborhoods all over Europe now where while it is not quite true to say, as Donald Trump has said, these are no-go zones, the police won't go away, you can't get anything done. But it is true to say that the police rarely go in because they have to go in with massive force. So if a, a woman is walking down the street and, and, uh, and she's not got her head covered up, she's attacked. And if, if people are behaving in ways that, uh, that Muslims regard as deviant, they don't just smile and they say different strokes for different folks. They, 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 they try to kill them. So this growing alarm, I think, is going to express itself in a number of ways. Some people will, as they do in America, they tend to withdraw into enclaves. They move. You know, we've had massive white flight from time to time from inner cities. But I think you're going to find people moving away from anywhere where they, they think they're going to face a lot of Muslim neighbors. There's the response that you're getting in Norway, where the Norwegian government is apparently willing to pay Muslim immigrants to get out. But there's also uh, a more ominous development. The mo- perhaps the most liberal, crazed liberal society in Europe, apart from the Netherlands and Belgium, probably the craziest place is Sweden. And the Swedes are buying guns up. There's a, there's a, there's a gun-buying fever in Sweden now. And it's not because they want to go rabbit hunt. Right. So we, this, we're, we are facing really quite an alarming circumstance. And the, the trouble with this is, you see, you, I've been arguing for 30, 35 years that we should take prudent and measured steps. I've always argued we should not be rude to Muslims. We should not be rude to, to, to immigrants from the third world or from South America. We should treat them according to our laws and according to Christian tradition. But on the other hand, we have to enforce our laws. And unless we're willing to become, you know, for, uh, say, Chicago to become Mexico City with a, with a murder rate about 10 times that of Chicago, if, if that's not what we want, then rather than abuse these people when they come here and buy, you know, and, and, and start forming lynch mobs and vigilance associations, we have to protect our border. And that, but that is precisely what the government of the United States for all my lifetime has refused. I don't remember. I'm not old enough to know a president who tried to resist mass immigration into the United States. Maybe under Harry Truman, I don't think so. Because certainly in the Eisenhower years, they had this Braceros program of bring, bringing in vast amounts of, uh, of uh, immigrants from South America. Of course, in that case, they were supposed to go back. 
The trouble is, all these programs we have, with one or another level of amnesty, but then we're going to shut the door. We never shut the door. There is never an end to the process. And the result is going to be massive hostility, and it, it, as there are right now. One of the, 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 the biggest killing spree, criminal killing sprees in America are not Muslims killing Americans. It's, it's blacks and Mexicans killing each other. Because there's enormous hostility between uh, between American uh, between African Americans and Mexican immigrants. Now, if you just if you let's now throw in a 10 percent Muslim component into the American population and see where that gets it. So the, the the trouble and this is true in Europe. I mean, Germany seems to be doomed. Merkel seems to have put paid to the German nation. You know. If, Whatever her deal is with the Turks, she and other similar political leaders in Europe are basically writing Europe out of the history books. There is no more Europe if they have their way. And the same thing is going on, not just with President Obama and his cronies, but George W. Bush behaved exactly the same way. Their motives may be different, but the way they behave is, is, uh, is uncannily similar. So if we can't solve the problem in a practical, humane, legal, and decent manner, the trouble is ordinary people on the street are going to do, follow the Swedish example. You know, every time there's a, a, an Islamic terrorist incident in America or in Europe, gun sales skyrocket in the United States. Now, I'm in fa- I support the Second Amendment. I'm in favor of gun owner rights. But on the other hand, the idea of a lot of, of city slickers, I'm a country boy. A lot of city slickers buying guns, not knowing how to use them, or or, or uh, what are the safety rules that you have to exercise about owning and keeping and keeping a gun out of the hands of children? Well, this is a very explosive situation. And no, no pun intended, I'm sure. Um, I think, Dr. Fleming, if if this is the situation that you're you're putting to us, and you're saying that that people are are moving, and I suppose part of what we propose at the Fleming Foundation is is study, and that's what we would do: study these matters, look into them. But also, there, there's a practical action. Are you saying that that we should probably just just move to to get away, given that it doesn't look like the governments are going to do anything about it? The trouble is where where, where to move to. Uh, maybe Hungary, uh, the, the Hungarian government <laughs> seemed to be willing, and the Slovaks seemed to be willing. The Slovaks said they would take in Christians, but um, the, the, the you the, think you the could Trump- count as a Christian refugee, Doctor Fleming? <laughs> well, why not? I've, 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 I I I want to argue for tribal homelands for believing Christians. You know, they could set up some. <laughs> In the, the Carolinas, or uh, don't make me go to the desert, but uh, <laughs> and uh, it's it's a preposterous, of course, but you know, gee, why not? Every we're an endangered species, aren't we? Don't we or don't we deserve some protection at least from the Environmental Protection Agency? We should, you know, they should zoos for us, you know, so that so that then these these atheists without children. And who do not have no knowledge of how to live or what what the humane traditions of the West have been, they should be able to come on a vacation, a very expensive paid vacation to Christian <laughs> world, and see and, and see Christians living normal lives. 
<laughs> You're reminding me of uh, in one of the Twilight Zone where that uh, that human gets trapped in that Martian zoo, and that would be us. Would be these uh, that Christian zoo where you could find out what what normal life looked like before uh, before deviance and everything else took over. I don't know if anyone would visit though, Doctor Fleming. Do you think so? If for no other reason than to come taste your bacon. <laughs> You know, in the uh, the most prophetic novel of the 20th century, which was not 1984, but Brave New World. In Brave New World, of course, the, these these silly uh, uh, chemically bred humans they uh, go out and take vacations out in the Southwest, and they they see the savages. And you think at first the savages are Indians, but in fact they're they're people who have never been incorporated into the New World order. And of course, John the, John Savage is the they become sort of the hero of the book, and as and the the end commits suicide because this is not a human world where a human being can live, and uh, it, it's the 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 world Huxley portrays is a world of of hypnosis and hallucination and mass consumption and people whose lives are controlled by uh, prescription drugs to, that that give them whatever mood they want, and this is certainly the world we live in. People always tell you, well, wouldn't it be terrible to have the world of, of, of Brave New World? No, 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 you don't understand. We've been in that world for 30 years. It, it's not identical, but, but you know, that we're a sex-obsessed culture. We're a drug-obsessed culture. There is no loyalty, no friendship, no attachment to place or home or family. That is our world. And the importance of studying the classics and of Christianity is because it in in and in, in context together is that we we get a glimpse into a sane wholesome world my joke about uh, starting you know Christian world is uh is of course uh, ridiculous but it is not ridiculous to engage in historical literary and theological study so that we are reground ourselves in the human reality of our civilization, and then we can move forward. Whatever we have to do, we can pass this on to our children and our friends. There's nothing more important you could do. In the end, it doesn't matter much who gets elected president of the United States. What matters is what your children will be reading and thinking and how how their children will be thinking. If you remember in uh, Ray Bradbury's great dystopia novel, Fahrenheit 451, at the at the very end, all these people are walking because books have been all burned, and all these people have committed books to memory, and so they're walking around in a garden, you know, reciting a tale of two cities or Hamlet or or whatever. And obviously, he didn't mean this literally, but yes, this is, this has to be through our foundation, through our friends, through allied groups. Something like that is our goal. We have to civilize ourselves so that we can help others. It's funny you bring up these dystopian examples because you spurred you spurred my thinking when you discussed uh, Brave New World, Dr. Fleming. I was thinking of uh, Canticle for Leibowitz by Walter yes. Miller. And yes. you could, I suppose the role of immigration in that story, uh, where you've got these uh, warring tribes at that point and, and, uh, and the role that the Pope plays uh, in trying to keep all of these uh, factions uh, together. So, you know, the future is very much like the present, I suppose. Yes, indeed. Um, that's a that's a fine book. I think everybody should read it about once every five years. Yes, 
Yes, and and for those who are not familiar with it, it's uh, it's not long, which I know puts you know sometimes people are worried about the books that Dr. Fleming might might uh, recommend being too long. It's not. It's three novellas. It's uh, it's quite readable. So I would encourage people to to read it as well. Uh, for those um, for those listening, we want to remind you that this is Christianity and the Classical Tradition, Episode Two on Immigration on the Fleming Foundation. I'm Stephen Heiner, and I've been with with Dr. Fleming today, and we've been discussing the Christian view of immigration, the Jewish view of immigration historically. We've also been looking at how did how the Greeks and Romans viewed aliens, strangers, and and immigration, and we tried to put the these different threads together in, in a coherent set of principles uh, for the thinking uh, and practicing Christian. Uh, apart from from uh, from uh, Christian world, I suppose, Dr. Fleming, uh, uh, most of your other principles are, are quite relatable and understandable. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Are there anything, uh, are any other things that you'd like to mention or uh, touch on before we end today's episode? Sometime in the future, um, I, I think we've uh, I think we've uh, exo- we've done a good introduction to the topic. I'd like to hit this topic again sometime in the future. Perhaps spend uh, the whole a whole forty five minutes on it, the ramifications of the Good Samaritan parable, because that parable is always used over and over to tell us that we should be kinder to aliens than we are to our own people. And it it means nothing of the kind. It's just one of the many, many, many stories that are ripped out of the Bible and distorted and twisted into meaning something which is quite alien and quite opposite to what was effect, uh, what what in fact was intended. And the only way back, I think, to uh, sane thinking as Christians is that we repudiate basically all the bright ideas that have come down the pike in the past 200 years, which are, you take, you take Christianity, which is a, a religion whose, whose adherents defended countries against invasion, who defended their culture and religion against Islam. And now we're told that somehow Charles Martel and Charlemagne were, had it, and Richard the Lionheart, they had it all wrong. But Voltaire and Rousseau and Karl Marx they have it all right. And it's time mm. for us to turn back to our, to our own traditions and believe them. And I, I would be, I'd be hope, hopefully I'll get to host that episode with you, Dr. Fleming, because I think that Good Samaritan story is very instructive. And, and it's, it's reminded me that our Lord, um, throughout Scripture, uses that tribal difference always as a rebuke to his own people. You know, the the yes. leper who comes back and uh, the one person who says, thank you, he's a stranger. I have not seen faith like this from a stranger. And uh, our Lord is using that idea of a tribe. I would expect more from my own people, right? Uh, that he is, as you say, uh, within that context and, and, and culture that we as we should be called to that as well. And, uh, and look at those moments uh, of a stranger doing something as, So as always, listeners, thanks so much for your time and thank you, Dr. Fleming.